0: Hey guys welcome to week three of the john the baptist series here at three circle church my name is chris bell i'm the lead pastor here at three circle and i'm really glad that you are joining us from wherever you might be your front porch the boat the beach maybe your living room wherever you are right now i just invite you to open your heart and your mind focus in on what god would have to say to you today now, let me ask you a question when you hear the word counterfeit what comes to mind well i think most of us when we hear the word counterfeit we think about money right and that's for good reason because counterfeit money has been around for as long as money and commerce and currency has been around itself. Here in America, counterfeit money has always been an issue. In fact, all the way back to colonial times, uh, when the first settlers came to the Americas and they began to get to know Indians, began to trade with them, they had counterfeit issues. The Indians and the colonials would trade using shells, like literally shells out in nature. And what they found is the black and the blue shells were more rare, therefore making them more valuable. So guess what they would do? They would paint and dye those shells uh, to try to make fake currency. It's always been an issue. Well, then they started using coins in the Americas as the Revolutionary War progressed and and they began to use these coins. Guess what? There were counterfeiters. And the way they would do it is they would actually take the same material that they used in coins and they would shave off little pieces of the coinage and then make fake coins out of it. It got so bad that there was a time where most of the coins in circulation in the United States were about half their original weight. In fact, if you take a coin right now that you have near you and you look on the edges of it, you'll find these little slits, these little indentions on the edge of your coins. That is there as an answer to those original counterfeiters with coins. It's much harder to do it. You can now see if a coin has been shaved off the edges by those little indentions. Pretty amazing, right? Well, then fast forward and we started using paper money, paper currency. Abraham Lincoln, one of the last things he did as president right before he was assassinated is he installed, set up the Secret Service. But do you know the Secret Service was not originally set up to protect the president? I mean, in fact, the last thing Lincoln did was set up the Secret Service and they were not there to protect him that night at the Ford Theater when he was assassinated. No, the Secret Service, number one job, the number one reason they were originally invented basically and installed was to get rid of counterfeit money. And one of the things they began to do to crack down in particular on paper money counterfeiting was they began to use certain types of paper. They used different markings to make it harder and harder to counterfeit paper money. So this went on and on and on to where even today, it's it's gotten harder and harder to counterfeit, but counterfeiting is still around. In fact, in the year 2000, they did a major redesign of all the paper money in America, and they estimate that they removed from circulation $60 million in counterfeit money. And it's been estimated that at any given time, there's over $150 million worth of counterfeit money in circulation in the United States alone, uh, at any given time. That's pretty amazing, right? So when we think about counterfeit, I want to give you a new thing to think about. Not just money like we normally do. Today, I want you to begin to understand that there's a thing called counterfeit Christianity. Counterfeit Christianity is something that's not real, that, that, that's not valuable, but yet it is so very prevalent in our churches and in our culture. And today, what we're going to see as we look at John the Baptist is there was counterfeit religion in his day as well. And as he began to preach, and today we're going to look at his preaching, we're going to see that John the Baptist preached a message that went right at the heart of counterfeit religion, counterfeit Christianity. He wanted the real thing, and he wanted Israel to have the real thing. And through the pages of Scripture, we'll find that he wanted us to have the real deal, not a counterfeit. So today, as we take a look at the preaching of John the Baptist, we're going to find out how to avoid counterfeit Christianity in our lives, in our church, and in our culture, and how we too can have the real deal when it comes to true, authentic, biblical, saving Christianity. So take a trip with me today as we see what John the Baptist had to say when he started preaching. So as we continue to explore John the Baptist's life, as we continue to learn from him, be inspired by him, and hopefully be transformed by the Word of God, today we will look at his preaching. We looked at his life uh, as it started. In week one, we looked at his embryonic development. Even as a baby, he was a a man with purpose, a man with value, and we learned that about human life. Last week, we even began to learn more about John the Baptist and what he came to do. He was the great road builder for Jesus. Well, today we're going to see his sermons. We're going to look at what he preached when he preached. What was galvanizing the Israelites with his preaching? What was it about him that was so dynamic? And what you're going to find is it was not just the way he preached, which was very powerful, very distinct, but it was the substance of what he was preaching. Let's go to the Bible now, Matthew chapter 3. We're going to take a look at what he uh, was preaching. It says this in Matthew 3, 1 through 2. It says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So right out of the gate, you get a one-liner. If you want to put what John the Baptist preached in one line, that's it. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he preached in places like this. He didn't preach in the temples. He was in the woods like I am right here on the banks of the beautiful Styx River here in South Alabama. He preached in the woods and people came by the thousands to hear him, including the religious leaders we're going to find they came. But let's go on and let's see some more details about his sermons that he preached. Let's go down to Matthew 3, 7 through 12. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff will burn with unquenchable fire. Now that is the sermon of John the Baptist, probably his most famous sermon. And we can look at his words and we can learn so much. So now, let's unpack the incredible words and incredible preaching of John the Baptist. So it's impossible to talk about John the Baptist and his preaching without talking about the idea and the concept of repentance. Uh, He talked about it all the time. It was the touchstone of all of his preaching. And it's a word that has been used throughout church history, so it is a common church word. But unfortunately, it is often misunderstood. And also, unfortunately, in particular in modern Christianity, it is a word that is not used enough. And yet, it is absolutely essential to our salvation. John the Baptist said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Bible is clear that we can't be saved without repentance. So what is repentance? Well, let's just define it a little bit. First of all, to understand what repentance is, let's look at what it is not. Repentance is not a mere academic change of mind. It's not you ascending mentally to a new place of understanding. So just learning more about Jesus or learning more about salvation and having the information is not enough. That is not what true repentance is. Another thing that repentance is not exclusively is the idea of regret. And I think a lot of us when we go, man, I wish I would not have done that. I really hate that I did that. And we go, well, that is repentance. Now, that may be a part of repentance and certainly is a natural reaction, but it is not repentance. That is not the way to define repentance. It's also not remorse. Remorse by itself is not repentance, where not only do you wish you would not have done something, because you can wish that you would not have done something in your life because of the consequences of it. That can be the emphasis of regret. But listen, you need to understand that remorse is feeling bad about it. So even if you feel bad about something that you did, you go, I wish I wouldn't have done it and I feel really bad about it. An apology, so to speak that is still not repentance. That, those may be elements of repentance, but too often people will have one of these pieces. They will regret, or they will have a change of academic status and understanding of something, or they will have remorse and feel bad. And they'll think, yes, I have repented, but that is not what repentance is. In our culture, we have a term that I use all the time, and it's this idea of my bad, my bad, right? When I do something wrong around the house, when I snap, at uh, someone when I, when I don't handle a situation right. Or even if I just mess up, I spill some uh, water or milk on a newly cleaned floor or I forget to turn something on that my wife asked me to turn on like the dishwasher at night. And she wakes up the next morning, she's like, oh, the dishes didn't get washed. And what's my term? What do I say? My bad. And, and, and it's almost like we think that kind of takes care of it. But the problem is I've said my bad to things, I bet you have too, that I kept doing. Guess what? I've said my bad 50 times to not turning the dishwasher on, and I still forget to turn the dishwasher on. So my bad really doesn't do anything. It's an acknowledgement, but it's not change. What you need to understand is repentance is more than acknowledging, more than feeling bad. Repentance is far more than my bad. Repentance is something else. So what is it? Let me give you a working definition for it. Repentance is a radical turning from sin that will always, this is important, it will always, true repentance, will always be accompanied by evidence of that repentance. And that's what we just saw in John the Baptist preaching. He says, repent and bear fruits of your repentance. You need to understand that repentance is at the heart of the gospel. In fact, not only did John the Baptist begin all of his sermons with, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Jesus who John the Baptist was preparing the way for, Jesus is going to preach the exact same thing. Look at Matthew four seventeen. It says, from that time, Jesus began to preach. And what did Jesus preach? If you were going to one line, Jesus preaching, like we did John the Baptist, it's the same line. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance is the initiation of our moving towards God, of our relationship with God. Now, you need to understand that repentance alone does not save us. But but faith in Christ alone is what ultimately saves us. But you don't get to faith without repentance. What I would say to help you understand this is if you had a coin in your hand like we were talking about earlier and you could flip that coin, you need to understand that repentance and faith are like two sides to the same coin. Repentance has to happen first, but immediately almost, simultaneously, Faith occurs for salvation. So in salvation, what you have is repentance in turning from sin, and then you have faith that is turning to God. Again, let me say that. Repentance is turning from your sin, and faith is when we turn to God. All of this, by the way, is the work of the Spirit of God in us. We can't do any of this on our own. God is the one who draws us to Himself. God is the one who convicts us of sin. Repentance and faith is the moving of God in our lives. So salvation in turn will always involve turning from your sin, which is repenting, and turning to God, which is faith. So to help us understand this concept, this biblically crucial concept of repentance that I just don't think we talk about enough anymore, because what I think we talk a lot about is faith. How do you come to Jesus? Come to Jesus, and rightly so. But I think what we leave out is a hard thing because maybe it's uncomfortable to talk about Because repentance involves some important things that are hard for us to deal with as humans. Uh, But we don't talk about repentance enough. And maybe that's why we have a lot of counterfeit Christianity in our churches. It's certainly why John the Baptist had to go right after counterfeit religion in his day. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, uh, the people of Israel who had been under their care and under their leadership. There was a ton of counterfeit religion, inauthentic, and it's happening today in our churches. It may, You may yourself be what I would call a counterfeit Christian. And hopefully today's message in using John the Baptist to help us understand will maybe help you identify whether you are an authentic Christian or whether you have fallen into that counterfeit Christianity camp. So when it comes to repentance, let's talk a little more about what it means. And a guy that's going to help us do that is an old, old pastor. He's not around anymore. He died a long time ago. His name is Thomas Watson. He was a Puritan preacher in the 17th century. And he had this amazing piece that he wrote and he preached about repentance. And he gave us these six things about repentance that I want to share with you today from this Puritan pastor, Thomas Watson. Here we go. First, the first thing involved in repentance is the sight of sin, he said. The sight of sin. This is when we view ourselves rightly as sinners. This is the beginning point. You can't become a Christian without these things happening. You also can't continue to grow in Christ without understanding your own sin. The Bible reminds us in Romans 3.10, None is righteous, no, not one. So we have this thing where we'll say, well, that person's a good person or that person's a good person. We'll, we even have ways of dividing things, right? Like most of us would say, Billy Graham, when he died, we'd say, Billy Graham was a really good guy, right? Just a really good, good man. But then we may look at some criminal, that, that, that some serial killer that dies, and we may go, now, that's a bad guy. That's not a good guy. But the Bible actually would say, no, no, you're going to have to take Billy Graham and all the other people that you think are good, maybe even yourself, and you're going to have to walk them all over to the not good side. Because the Bible says actually when it comes to righteousness, there is no one who is good, right? This idea is the idea of self-righteousness. Have you ever said or ever heard the term, that person is self-righteous? Normally when we use that term, what we're saying is they are proud or they are arrogant. But theologically, the Bible has a more in-depth idea when it talks about self-righteousness. And it's the idea of someone who is trusting in themselves to save themselves. Well, this is clear that you need to understand that can't be so. You and I are not good on our own. We need Jesus. And Thomas Watson says the first piece of repentance is having a right view of our sin, the sight of sin. Secondly, is the sorrow over sin. If we are going to truly repent, there will be an element of sorrow. David had this. King David in the Old Testament taught us how to repent really well when he sinned, and he was a spectacular sinner at times. He said this in Psalm 51, 17, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Part of repentance is letting your heart be broken over your sin. When's the last time you were truly heartbroken over your sin? When's the last time that it really just bothered you in the depths of who you are that you had sinned? This is a part of what real repentance looks like. Thirdly is the idea of the confession of sin. The confession of sin. Uh, Listen to this. This is important. Thomas Watson said this, a great quote. Sorrow is such a vehement passion. So he goes back to number two. Sorrow over sin leads to confession of sin. He says, sorrow is such a vehement passion, it must vent. It vents itself at the eyes with weeping, but it vents itself at the tongue by confession. What he's saying is when you truly are broken over your sin, it will come out of you. It will come out in emotion, weeping. It'll come out of your mouth with confession. That's what real repentance looks like. Fourthly is the idea of shame of sin. This great old Puritan pastor says there is an element of shame. Now he's not talking to the Christian who who stays wallowing around in their shame and it holds them back from true joy. But there is an initial shame in sin because sin makes us guilty. Now, Jesus has paid for the guilt for the Christian, but, but it is a reminder that these are the things that put Jesus on the cross. These are the things He shed His blood to cover. There should be an element of shame, not an uh, an ongoing shame that we wallow in, but, a, but an initial shame that leads us to repentance. It is a part of repentance. In fact, we see it in the Bible. Thomas Watson said this about uh, shame in, initially. He says, blushing is the color of virtue. In other words, there's... There's a shame over my sin when I continue to sin. Ezra 9, 6 in the Old Testament says this, Oh my God, I am ashamed and I blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. So there should be an element of shame in sin. Fifthly, Thomas Watson says there should be a hatred of sin. We should hate sin. He said this, Christ is never loved till sin is loathed. I think that's very true. Loving God must be genuine. That's what Romans 12, 9 says. Listen to what it says. Let your love be genuine. Watch this. Abhor what is evil. You want to know something that means that you truly love God and your love for Him is authentic? When there becomes an abhorrence, you abhor, or in other words, you hate and despise sin. When you see it elsewhere, but also maybe most importantly, when you see it in your own life. Uh, Romans says, hold fast to what is good. And then finally, Thomas Watson helps us understand repentance when he says repentance involves turning from sin. He said this, repentance means little if it does not lead to reformation. Repentance should lead to reformation in our lives. Or in other words, it should lead to change, radical change. Ezekiel 14.6 helps us understand this point. It says, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, So this is God speaking to Israel. You could also say this is God speaking to us. Repent, watch this. He doesn't just leave it there. He says, repent and turn away from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations. In other words, repentance is active. Repentance isn't just something you make up in your mind. It's something that will involve what John the Baptist called fruits of repentance. It's so radical, there's always going to be evidence of it. Repentance is so visceral and so radical that it leaves a trail behind that you can see. It's called fruits of repentance. So Thomas Watson helps us understand today. Repentance is far more than most of us have ever been told than many of us have experienced. But hopefully today we'll begin to see that repentance, which is crucial to our salvation, crucial to our ongoing walk with God, repentance is a complex thing that is Very clear in Scripture that we all need, and it's probably more than we have imagined. So let's continue now to look at the actual sermon of John the Baptist. He said this, he said uh, in verse 7, he said, You are a brood of vipers uh, to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This is an incredible term. So let's just talk about who these guys were. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were two different theological uh, strains uh, of religious leaders. The Pharisees were the more theologically correct They actually believed the Bible. They believed in the resurrection of the dead. Uh, They were very conservative uh, in their beliefs, and and they were pretty committed to them. But they they did not love God, by and large, in a saving way. And that's what Jesus and John the Baptist are going to go after them on. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were not really good theologians. They didn't believe large portions of the Bible, and they were extremely political. But they used religion as a way to get political power. It's interesting. The Pharisees and the Sadducees literally hated each other. They were at each other all the time, but they coalesced in their interest in John the Baptist and eventually in their hatred and in their opposition to Jesus. So it was maybe some of the only times in history that these two groups ever got along was to bring them down. And so here they are showing up. John the Baptist is out in the woods preaching and tons of people are coming and he is baptizing them with water baptism to symbolize their repentance. We're going to talk about that more in subsequent weeks. Uh, But here comes the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they come down and and they're, they're certainly listening to him preach And they begin to want to be baptized as well. And he says to them, you are a brood of vipers. Who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, what's he talking about? Again, John the Baptist is looking to take down counterfeit religion. And no one represented that more than the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They believed that their own good works could save them. They believed that they were good enough and better than everybody else and that that's how you stayed in good standing with God. It was not about grace. It was not about a relationship. It was about strict adherence to the rules. And they even made up more rules to make it even harder. And this had led the people of Israel down a road of counterfeit religion, counterfeit Christianity, right? That's what we're talking about today. The same thing happens today. So John the Baptist calls them out. And he says to them, you are a brood of vipers. A couple things I want you to understand here. First of all, a brood of vipers was a common phrase in that day. To say you're a brood of vipers meant you're not good. You have bad intentions. So John the Baptist is going at their hearts. It looked like they had good intentions. They're coming down like everyone else to hear the message of John the Baptist, to hear the preaching, and then to make a show of it by being baptized. John the Baptist will have none of it because he knows and understands their hearts are not where they should be. See, John the Baptist was also using this term to describe a common thing that would happen in that area. They would have these fires, these wildfires. And in those that wilderness where John the Baptist was, there were these things called vipers. They had vipers there, and they did not like the water. These snakes did not like water. But what they hated more than they hated water was fire. So when a wildfire would happen from lightning or whatever... Uh, the, it was an arid culture, so things like that could happen. These vipers would head for the water. You would find these snakes that would never go near the water. If there was a fire surrounding the area, they would find the water to escape the fire. Now watch this. They were not water snakes. That was not their, The water was not their environment, just like this river that I'm on right here, Styx River. Uh, th- these snakes would not naturally be found in that water, but if there was a fire around, you could find them at the water's edge, maybe even in the water to get away from the fire had nothing to do with their love for water, had everything to do with their fear and their hatred of the fire. That is what John the Baptist is doing. He's going into the Pharisees and Sadducees' heart, and he's saying, you guys aren't coming here because you love God. You're coming here because you hate the possibility of punishment and destruction. So you're trying to check one more thing off of your religious list. It sounds like modern culture Christianity right now, where many people will go to church just to mark it off the list. And many of us are, maybe we've never truly repented, never really given our our life over to Jesus. And yet we put on the religious show. We come and we do the thing and we we attend church, we do all the church things, particularly where I live here in uh, the southern part of the country. There is a massive cultural Christianity that takes place here. It is deadly, it is dangerous, and it is not saving Christianity. And John the Baptist goes right at it and he says, Are you coming to the water because you love God? Or are you coming to the water because you're trying to check it off a religious list? You're trying to escape the fire. Now Jesus had something similar to say about the same situation and it's even more visceral and even more in-depth. Let's take a look at what Jesus had to say about the same issue right now. In a stunning place in the Scriptures, Jesus Himself was preaching long after John the Baptist had passed the torch to Him, did His job of creating that highway for Him. Jesus is now preaching. And in Matthew 7, 21-23, these stunning words from Christ come across the pages of Scripture. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Remember, repentance leads to the fruits of repentance. True, authentic faith leads to fruits. That's what he's saying. Jesus is saying, there's a lot of people that are going to say they love me, but their life won't show it. Verse 22, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, this is exactly what John the Baptist was preaching on, and Jesus picked it up and took it further, clarified it even more, which is exactly the way the two would interact prophetically from the Old Testament. This is exactly how it would work. Jesus, listen, when He said those words, He wasn't talking to uh, people who weren't religious. He was talking to the church people. Now, think about that for a second. He would have been talking to all of us warning us of this. Jesus is not talking to false religion people. He's not talking to cult leaders. He's not talking to the murderers and the deviants here. He's talking to people who were listening to him teach, the religious people in Israel of his day. And he's telling them, he's warning them, hey, not all of you who say, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, he's saying exactly what John the Baptist did. He's saying many of you are counterfeits. Many of you say the words, play the game, do the deal, check the to-do religion list off, and you're not for real. You are like counterfeit money. Self-righteousness, again, is what he's warning about. He's saying you can't save yourself. Only Jesus can. And notice a phrase that they use. They said this. Jesus says, they will stand before me in that great day. After death, right? They'll stand before me and they'll say, did we not do all of these things? And see, the gospel moves it from did we not to did he. It moves from what we have done to what God has done in Christ. And the problem is false and counterfeit Christianity will always say that. Look what we did. Didn't we do all these things? It would probably sound a lot like this. Didn't we say grace before our meals? Didn't we listen to Christian music? Didn't we watch Kirk Cameron movies? Didn't we go to church at least once or twice a month. Didn't we throw money in the offering plate? Didn't we sponsor a child? Didn't we do didn't we go on that mission trip? Didn't we, didn't we didn't we didn't we did we not? But the Bible tells us that authentic Christianity does not say, look at we, look at what we did. Authentic Christianity always says, I'm trusting in what Jesus has done. And that's what John the Baptist was attacking that day on the shores of that water and it's what we're talking about today on the shores of this water. What are you trusting in and are you counterfeit in your Christianity? Have you played a religious game, a cultural Christianity game, or are you authentic in your love for God? So let me ask you this question today. What would be your version? Like Jesus and John the Baptist was saying to the religious people of their day, what would be your version of, like, when you stand before God, the religious side of you, what would you say, "Lord, did I not fill in that blank? Where have you been religious? And maybe you've put a little too much clout in that. And what would it look like for you to change that to, "This is what Jesus has done in my life, And that's what I'm trusting in. Nothing else but Christ and His righteousness. Jesus and John were on the same page. Let's go back to John's sermon, and let's see what else he had to say. So as we look at John the Baptist's sermon, the next thing we see is that he told the Pharisees and the Sadducees and everyone who would listen, he said, you should always bear fruit with repentance. Remember we said that repentance will always leave evidence of its authenticity. You always will have evidence of true repentance. We would say it like this, listen, repentance itself is not a work. The Bible says we can't be saved by works. Repentance is not a work, but it always results in works. Repentance is a part of being saved. It in and of itself it's not a work. It's not something you achieved. But it is something that will always lead to works. It will always leave evidence that it was there. I'm telling you. It's like if you uh, repentance is a little more obvious. It's not something that you have to look hard for. It's like, look, I'm standing here in South Alabama in this beautiful place on Sticks River. But if someone let an elephant out in this area and the elephant walked around here, I would know it was here. Like, it'd be impossible. I'd be like, that's not deer tracks. That's a big animal. Like, that's not what normally hangs out here. There may be some other signs left around the place that would tell me that's an elephant. You know what I'm saying? It's real obvious. And I think what the problem is in our own lives, We think repentance is this mysterious thing. And John the Baptist and Jesus are saying, no, there'll be clear signs that repentance has happened in your life. There will be fruits, John the Baptist said, of repentance. What's he talking about? See, we want to think things are more mysterious than they are. But all you have to do is keep reading the Bible. And the Bible tells you what fruits of repentance are. Go to Galatians uh, 5, 22 to 23. Listen to what it says. It says, the fruit of the Spirit, which would be fruit of repentance, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, And faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. Against such things, there is no law. In other words, repentance, true repentance, leads to this new evidence that you have a relationship with God. And that evidence are, listen, would be things, fruits on the tree of your life that could not have happened without the work of God in your life. You can fake it for a little bit, but not very long. These things show that you have truly repented. Fruits of repentance. Listen, there will always be evidence of repentance. The next thing we see in verse 9 is he said, don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Here's another thing that always happens with cultural Christianity, and you just need to understand this. You can't inherit Jesus. Listen, just because you came from a godly family, good folks, they voted the right way, voted their values, uh, you know, made good money and were good people, and all these things we like to say, in particular in the southern United States where I am. all right, We, we just love this stuff. John the Baptist is saying, hey, you can drop all your... Abraham's our father stuff. And I think he would say to us, hey, you can drop all of your uh, God and guns and we're good old boys and Southerners and and we like good country music and we like a good steak on Saturday night and I like my chicken and my uh, my cold beer and all that kind of stuff that comes from all of our songs and everything we have, right? All that good old boy Christianity. John the Baptist would say to us with a half-eaten locust hanging out of his beard and a leather outfit, crazy hair, he'd look at you and go, hey, you can leave that at the door. He would look at all of us and really get on us. And he would say, tell me where the evidence is. Show me where the evidence is that you really love Christ, that you've really sold out to him, that you've really given every part of your life because there will be evidence of your repentance. There'll be evidence of the authenticity of your Christianity. And he would say, don't give me this Abraham is my father stuff because you can't inherit Jesus. You have to believe upon him and you can't Uh, walk into heaven on the faith of your father or your mother. It has to be your faith individually in Christ. John the Baptist is coming right at this stuff. As I stand here with these dead trees around me, it it brings to mind a word that I think is one of the most dangerous words for people who don't know Christ, for people who are playing the counterfeit Christianity game. You want to know one of the most dangerous words? It's tomorrow. Tomorrow I'll believe. Tomorrow I'll give my life to Jesus. Tomorrow when I've done this or I've done that. Tomorrow. But there is an urgency to the preaching of John the Baptist and ultimately Jesus that you are not guaranteed tomorrow, but you have right now. If you're watching this sermon, you have right now. I'd say tomorrow is one of the most dangerous words in the world for you. But I'd say today is one of the most beautiful words. Today is full of opportunity. Today, right now, is the time. To trust Christ with your life. So as John the Baptist was preaching this incredibly powerful sermon to an audience full of Sadducees, Pharisees, and Israelites, a lot of religious people, church people, if you will, he was telling them the, the harsh realities of counterfeit religion and counterfeit Christianity. And he said one of the realities is at some point there's going to come an end. At some point this life ends for all of us and none of us know when that's going to happen. It's every day you can see in the news that a young person lost their life and an elderly person lost their life. And you and I don't know when that day is going to come, when the clock of this life on this side of the grave stops ticking. We just don't. And John the Baptist knew that reality well. He would die just not long after this was preached. He said in verse 10, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He's talking about final judgment here. And as I stand in this place that used to have beautiful trees, they've been cut to the ground because the people that cut these trees decided that these trees did not have worth. Uh, They were not worthy of taking off and being turned into something beautiful. They just cut them down and left them here. It's a graveyard of trees here, dead trees. And can I tell you, this is what eternity uh, without Jesus looks like. Because at some point, what they're going to do to clean all this up, you can see they're already putting it in a pile behind me. They will burn it to the ground. Every bit of this will become ash. And I know it's not popular in our modern culture to talk about things like hell and final judgment and eternal separation from God, but they happen to be biblical concepts. And John the Baptist preached it and Jesus preached it. Jesus talked about the reality of eternity apart from God and the reality of hell just about as much as He talked about anything. So what I want you to hear me tell you today is I love you enough, I care about you enough to tell you that counterfeit Christianity leads to a graveyard. Trusting in yourself leads to a graveyard. And the one with the axe that cuts the tree down that never bore fruit is the ultimate judge, Jesus Himself. And today, this doesn't have to be your end or mine. The gospel offers us another way, a way to life, a way to salvation, a way to Jesus. Jesus gave His life on a cross, on a tree, to keep you and I from having the axe laid to our lives in the end counterfeit Christianity is not worth you wasting your life on. Give your life to Christ. That's what John the Baptist is preaching, but it is a warning. He loves you enough to tell you the truth. He loves you enough to say, hey, without Jesus, the axe will be put to your tree of your life, and you'll end up in the in the heap. You'll end up here. But it doesn't have to be so for you or, or me. You hearing this right now is evidence that God loves you and is calling to you through the pages of Scripture to give your life to Christ and bear fruit of repentance. So the last thing we see here is John the Baptist talking in verse 12 about a winnowing fork in his hand. He says he's going to clear the threshing fold, gather the weed into the barn. And he talks about this thing called chaff. He will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. So what John the Baptist is saying is that he's starting a job that Jesus is going to finish. And John the Baptist is saying, look, I'm preaching all this, but I'm not the one that's ultimately going to do it. I'm not the ultimate judge. The one coming after me, that's Jesus. He says, He's the one that's coming with the ultimate judgment. Remember, Jesus is the one that will stand that day and say to us, I never knew you. And one visceral, visual example that John the Baptist gives us is a winnowing fork and a threshing floor. And he says, Jesus is the one holding that winnowing fort. What's he talking about? Well, in that day, what they would do is when they got crops in and they harvested those crops, they'd put them on the floor, threshing floor and they would take this big fort looking thing and they would jab it into a big chunk of that wheat that had other stuff in it as well. And it's real hard to separate it. They didn't have machinery like we do today that'll separate all that. So they would literally toss the wheat into the air. And wheat is heavy. So when it fell, it would leave in the air the chaff. The chaff would literally blow away just in the air. It would blow out of the wheat and the wheat would fall to the ground. And they would do this over and over again until they got all of this stuff called chaff, which was useless. It looked like the real thing, wasn't the real thing. It would be out of the way. And what was left was the good stuff, the real wheat. Now, let me ask you something. If Jesus was to walk into our church, into our homes, and start tossing us in the air, Are we coming back to the ground because we are authentic? Is there a weight to our Christianity? Is there a weight to what we have said about Jesus? Or are we cultural counterfeit Christians? And would we blow away like dust in the wind? That's the question today. And your answer to that question, my friends, wherever you are today, has eternal implications. So I would say to you today, like John the Baptist did, Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if you're wondering about repentance, look at the evidence in your life. And if there is no evidence, then you are chaff. You're playing a game, and it's a dangerous game. But it's not a game you have to play. John the Baptist's message was true for the Pharisees, Sadducees, and all the people of Israel. Repent. You need to get serious about Jesus today. Our holy God is not one to be trifled with. Leave the counterfeit Christianity behind. Leave the cultural Christianity behind and come to a real and authentic faith in Christ today that will transform your life, that will leave very clear evidence of your Christianity. It'll cost you everything, but you'll receive more than you could ever imagine in Christ. It's going to cost you your old life to follow Jesus, but you're going to get the new one in Christ. So today, what are you? Are you a counterfeit? Are you like Monopoly money that's fun in a game? but can't get you anything, or are you the real deal? When Jesus throws us in the air with the winnowing fork of His purity and judgment, do we fall back to the ground as wheat, or do we blow away in the wind? My hope is today that you will have a faith in Christ that is saving, that is authentic, and that you will have evidence of repentance in your life like John the Baptist preached. And I pray that that will happen today.